You can open your Bible to Habakkuk chapter 3, toward the end of your Old Testament, Habakkuk 3. And we're going to be reading the whole chapter. Now, hopefully this is one of the last sermons on this issue of the coronavirus. But I did find it necessary to preach on it, seeing that Christians get confused on the matter, and they got questions, and the Bible has answers. So Habakkuk 3, and the theme then is a Christian response to the coronavirus. A Christian response to the coronavirus. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we call upon your most high name, your holy name, your righteous name. And we pray that you would open hearts, that you would break hearts of stone, remove them, and give people sensitive hearts, hearts that will be sensitive to your word and your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So people do have different reactions and their different responses to this issue of the coronavirus. So you remember before lockdown, people were doing panic buying and uh, many people on this matter, it's like they have a, a don't care attitude. Can't care less. Uh, others are fatalistic, meaning whatever will be, will be. If I get it, I get it. If I don't, then, then I won't get it. So it doesn't matter whether I, I break the rules and cough on someone or someone coughs on me. Um, who cares? Other people just don't, they don't abide by the rules and by the law of the land. And they complain against the government. Why, why lockdown? And I'm going into the street. I'm not staying in my house. And other people say it's an overreaction. And I think to a certain extent it is in terms of uh, people getting all panicky and fearful. Because as Christians we shouldn't. Where I don't think it's an overreaction in terms of people dying. It's a serious matter. And then other people think, you know, I can just speak life. I won't speak death, as they say. I'll speak life. I'll just chant Psalm 91, the, the passage I preached on this morning. I'll just chant Psalm 91. This will be my magic spell. And, and um, you know, I'll just speak life and won't get sick. Well, my question is, why haven't you spoken life long ago and we don't have the virus at all? Other people think that the people who get the virus are worse sinners than the rest? Well, Jesus answered that issue in Luke 13, verse 1 to 5. Other people are nailed, they're glued to the TV or the internet, just watching the stats all the time or whatever news there may be about the virus. Other people are afraid of death. Other people fear the future, the economy is going to crash. Other people are afraid of this whole thing, they think this is a conspiracy and, you know, kind of conspiracy theories going around. It's the Illuminati and this is the end time and there's going to be a new world order and a one world currency currency, and, and they're going to vaccinate us and in the vaccination will be the chip and it's going to be the triple six and this is the Antichrist and other people see the devil behind any and every sickness and other people just preach hellfire and brimstone and no sermons on giving Christians hope. And other people, well, they're safe and sound, hidden away in their houses, and that's all that matters. As long as they're safe, they don't care about the rest. 
They don't pray for the rest. They don't pray for the world. They don't pray for the sick. They don't pray for people to be converted and saved. And then others are just unproductive, vegging in this time for three weeks, just sitting on the internet, watching movies, reading books, not doing anything productive. And so we can continue. Well, these things, that's an unchristian response to the whole matter. We should respond like Habakkuk did in chapter 3, in his difficult circumstances. And how was that? Well, we, I'm going to summarize it in three words. First word is pray. And that's in one, verse 1 and 2. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I've heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. You remember in the year 2000, uh, the prayer of Jabez was doing the round. Bruce Wilkinson wrote a little book called The Prayer of Jabez, and it's from First Chronicles 4, this verse, of a man who prayed that the Lord would spare him, that he wouldn't have pain, and that his fields would be enlarged, his, his farm and his land and so on. Um, and it, kind of, it almost became kind of a fashion thing where people thought you could just say this prayer, and that's actually how it was taught, just let's say it like a rhyme. Every morning say the prayer, and, and then you can claim for yourself riches and no problems and success and wealth and health. And Now, it's not wrong to pray the Bible. It's not even wrong to pray that verse. But we don't pray like pagans. We don't pray. It's kind of a mantra, you know, this, this rhyme, this chant. Uh, Jesus warned against that in Matthew 6, verse 7. That's how our unbelievers pray. That's not how we pray. And that's not how we pray when the coronavirus is around. We don't take Psalm 91, as I preached this morning. We don't take Psalm 91, and this is my chant. It's going to protect me. No, the way we pray is like Habakkuk did in this chapter. Now, let me give you a bit of background. So in Habakkuk 1, Habakkuk starts out and he says, Lord, what are you doing? What? Just, just look at Israel, look at your own people, the violence, the corruption. It's just, it's like it's out of hand and you're just doing nothing. It's like you're sitting in heaven ignoring everything, turning a blind eye and a deaf ear. What are you doing, Lord? Why don't you act against this corruption and violence? And then God answers him in chapter 1. He says, I am going to act. I'm sending the Babylonians, that bloodthirsty nation. They're going to destroy, they're going to slaughter people in Israel. And then Habakkuk responds in chapter 1, verse 12. And he says, Lord, you can't do that. That's worse. I mean, these Babylonians, they, they're more violent than Israel. How can you use wicked people to punish Israel? I know we're wicked, but they're worse. I can't accept that, Lord. We're not going to die. I'll just stand here, take my stand. At the watch post, chapter 2, verse 1, I'm going to wait for your answer. I'll wait for your answer until you answer my call. And then God answers him in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, you can be certain. Habakkuk, write this in stone. It's going to happen. The Babylonians will come. If it seems slow, don't be fooled. Because as soon as the, the prophecy starts being fulfilled, when the Babylonians come, it'll come quickly. And those proud people, I'm going to destroy them. 
But the righteous shall live by his faith. Chapter 2, verse 4. So the one, the one who believes my promises and this prophecy, and they act accordingly and they obey, they'll spare, save their own lives. And then he continues in chapter 2, verse 5, and the rest of chapter 2, where he says that God's going to then punish the Babylonians. So yes, first and foremost, he's going to punish his own people by using the Babylonians, but then he's going to punish the Babylonians themselves. And then Habakkuk comes in chapter 3 and now he prays. And we should learn from his prayer how we should pray in our crisis and in our trials and during the coronavirus. How should we pray? Well, don't pray like he did in chapter 1 where you start blaming God and, and then you start questioning God and you want to tell God how he has to do things. We shouldn't pray like that, but rather like he did in chapter 3. How's that? Well, tell your heart to be quiet. Just Make your heart quiet before the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. If all the earth keeps silence before him, so be silent before God and then subject yourself and submit to God's will to say, Lord, this is what you're going to do. And I bow the knee before you. Verse 2. O Lord, I've heard the report of you and of your work. Your work, O Lord, do I fear. I fear. So you start focusing on God. On how great God is and how majestic God is. Instead of how great the problem is. And then sing praises. Sing praises to God when you pray. Verse 1. Prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. That's a, like a, a melody. And it might be some term but it's a liturgical term when it comes to singing praises. And then the very last verse of this chapter. The very last line to the choir master with stringed instruments. So sing praises as he did. He praised God for who he is. He praised God for what he did. That's what the whole chapter is about. And I'm serious when I say that. Sing, sing, because now it's lockdown. We can't gather. You listen to sermons on the internet, but we don't sing together. So sing during your quiet time. Sing during your family worship. Sing with other believers. Sing on your own. Sing praises to the Lord. That, that just, it fits that's how it's supposed to be with Christians. Psalm 33, 1, Psalm 147, verse 1. It's fitting. A song of praise is fitting because we're saved. Our sins are forgiven. We have eternal life. It's unlike Muslims. Muslims don't sing. They're not a singing religion. Hindus don't sing. Atheists don't sing when they come together and sing kind of praises. They have nothing to sing about. Christians sing. And then also... First, read the Word and meditate on the Word. Think over the Word of God. And then you pray in response to that. Verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you. And then he starts praying. So I've heard chapter 1 and 2. I've heard what you're going to do. I've heard your Word now. And then I pray in response to that. So in other words, like the, like the, the Word of God, the Bible feeds your prayers. It's give, it gives you the matter, the, the content of what you should pray about. Uh, George Muller understood that. George Muller said, formerly, meaning in the past, when I rose in the morning, I began to pray as soon as possible. I often spent a quarter of an hour on an hour on my knees, struggling to pray while, while my mind wandered, you know, daydreaming. Now I rarely have this problem, rarely. As my heart is nourished by the truth of the word, I'm brought into true fellowship with God. I speak to my father and my friend. Although I am unworthy, I speak to him about the things he has brought before me in his precious word. When we pray, we speak to God. 
This exercise of the soul can be best performed after the inner man, the soul, has been nourished by meditation on the word of God. End quote. Then, and, uh, further, furthermore, when we're speaking of prayer, how should we pray? Well, pour, pour your heart out before the Lord. Cast your burdens on the Lord. Bring your anxieties to the Lord. Give your fears to the Lord. Fear God. Verse 2. He says, your work, O Lord, do I fear. And then he just pours out his heart before the Lord. We should do the same. And then also pray for a revival of God's work, a reviving of his work. Verse 2, in the middle, in the midst of the years, revive it. He's speaking of God's work. In the midst of the years, make it known. So in spite of the corona, or perhaps because of the coronavirus, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. Make your salvation known in the earth. Furthermore, ask God to remember mercy in his wrath, in his anger. Remember mercy. End of verse 2. In wrath, remember mercy. Remind God of his own character. Say to the Lord, Lord, you don't have any pleasure in the death of the wicked. Lord, you sent your only begotten Son to this world. That whoever believes in him may not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Lord, your, your mercy triumphs over your judgment. You even say in Isaiah 28 verse 21 that punishment is it's like a strange work to you. Thomas Watson the Puritan said, the bee, a bee, that insect, the bee naturally gives honey. It stings only when it's provoked. So God doesn't punish till he can be no longer. Lord, you, you only punish when there's no other way out. 2 Chronicles 36, 15 and 16, Jeremiah 44, 22. So we're not praying to the Lord. Oh Lord, please remember our good works and save us. No, we're saying in wrath, remember mercy, mercy. And then thank God for his, for his compassion and for his mercy. Thank him that his mercies are new every morning. That he's the father of mercies. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3. Thank him that he loves you. That he loves you. And in his wrath even, he shows mercy as verse 2 tells us. So it's not willingly, it's not with any desire that God punishes. It's with pain in his own heart that he punishes. Says Lamentations 3, 31 to 33. His compassion grows warm. He doesn't desire to punish people. Hosea 11 verse 8 and 9. Even when God punished the Moabites in Isaiah 15 and 16. You see in that chapter, read it three times, it said God weeps. He weeps. He drenches them with his tears while he's punishing them. He weeps. So thank God. That the coronavirus is not worse than it could have been. It could have been the Black Death where millions, 20 million die, 50 million. Thank him for his mercy. Thank him that he doesn't punish us according to what we deserve. If God had to mark all our sins in a book, who would stand? Who would stand if God would punish us in that way? He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So thank him. Thank him that 
that instead of, of pouring out his anger, his wrath upon us, he remembered mercy. And where did he remember that most of all? In the very place where his wrath fell. When he poured his wrath on his own son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, oh there, oh there, God remembered mercy, mercy, mercy. When Jesus drank the cup of wrath that we can drink the cup of mercy. And now, not even the coronavirus will separate us from the love of God. Not even the coronavirus will be a judgment upon the children of God, a condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Number two, that's the first word is pray. Second word is remember. Verse 3 to 15. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens. And the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like light. Rays flashed from his hand. And there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheath of your bow, from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. So you know when children tell their dad, so the dad says, no, no, you can't do this or that. And they say, but, but last time you said. That's what Habakkuk does. Obviously with much respect. He says to the Lord, but Lord, last time you did. So he's reminding God of the past. That's what these verses are about. And Habakkuk remembers how, God, how our God's people feared him, how they praised him for his power, his power that was hidden in the, in the pillar of the pillar of cloud and fire and when God came down on Mount Sinai there was fire and, and thunder and lightning and smoke and an earthquake Sinai which is close to Timan and, and Mount Paran we read of in these verses you remember that that really comes from Deuteronomy 33 verse 2 
It says the same kind of thing. Deuteronomy 33 verse 2 reads as follows. The Lord came from Sinai. He dawned from Seir upon us. He shone from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. And then Habakkuk remembers how God sent pestilence on the Egyptians and the rebellious Israelites in verse 5. Before him went pestilence, plague followed at his heels. Remember the, the plague of pestilence, of boils in Exodus 9 and pestilence. This plague came upon the Israelites in Numbers 14 and Numbers 16 and Numbers 25. Habakkuk remembers how, how the nations trembled before God and the eternal God who existed before the mountains. And he just obliterated uh, peoples and, and he came and he, he just leveled the mountains. Verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. Obviously, probably measuring the land for his people. This is your land, the promised land. He looked, he shook the nations. The eternal mountains were scattered. Everlasting hills sank low. He's, he's worthy everlasting ways. God is eternal. He's before the mountains. Even if people grow to be a thousand years old, it's like yesterday in God's sight. It's like vapor. It's like smoke. It's like mist. Habakkuk remembers how the people of Cushan and Midian, that's in North the northwest, uh, really, I've said it wrong in my sermon notes, the northwest of Arabia, not northeast, the northwest of Arabia, the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and we find that in Galatians 4.25, where Mount Sinai was, and Cushion and Midian in the same area. And, and they shook and they trembled when God came on the mountain. And then Habakkuk remembers how God opened the Red Sea and the waters, it's like the, the waters put its arms up into the air. And how God came with his chariots to drown the Egyptians and conquer them. And then also later on, our God opened the Jordan River. He dried up the river. Verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord, your anger against the rivers, your indignation against the sea? Verse 10. The mountains saw you and the raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice, lifted its hands on high. So you hear you have the Red Sea opening. And verse 15, you trampled your sea with horses, the surging of mighty waters. And then he remembered how God took, stripped the sheath from his bow. It's like he's now ready for war. He's, the arrows are in the bow, like in Psalm 7. He's ready to strike the enemy, to kill them. And then he commands his, his arrows who they, sh who they should, should strike. In verse 9, calling for many arrows, like he's saying, come arrows, like he's saying, you strike there, you strike there. And then he splits the earth with rivers in verse 9, where he, he broke the rock and he sends water from the rock for his people to drink in the desert. And then Habakkuk remembers how, how the sun stood still. He's recalling Joshua, the book of Joshua. The sun stands still, the moon stands still. And God strikes the enemy with his arrows and with his flashing spear in verse 11. And Habakkuk remembers how God, full of wrath, he marches through the earth. He comes to just flatten the enemy. Like a farmer comes with his, on his farm and he threshes the corn, the wheat. Verse 12, you march through the earth in fury. You thresh the nations in anger like Micah. Four also teaches in verse 12 and 13. Habakkuk remembers how, 
how God saves his anointed one, his anointed people, verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, the salvation of your anointed. Psalm 105, verse 15 speaks of God's people as his anointed. And then he remembers how God came and he, he crushed the heads of the enemy. So the heads of the, the nations, of the wicked, in verse 13 in the middle. Now that can mean their heads, literally. So you've got a wound in your head, it's a fatal wound. Or it can mean the heads, meaning the heads of the house, the, the leaders. So the kings of the enemy, and then God strips them. He strips them naked. It says from thigh to neck, or it literally says from the foundation to the neck. It's like they, they made a sh almost an embarrassment where they stand in front of everyone and they're naked. God strips them of everything these heads of the nations. Remember what he did to Pharaoh and to Og, the king, king of the enemy, and Sion, the king of the Amorites, Og, the king of Bashan, and the Canaanite kings. And then Habakkuk remembers how God took the bow from the enemy, their bows and arrows, and he struck, he took these kings, he took their bows, and he killed their own generals, their own leaders of their armies. He struck, he shot them in the head, so it's a head wound, it's fatal, they they're dead. And why did you do that? To prevent them from crushing and from scattering poor little Israel. He came like a whirlwind to scatter me, verse 14, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret, but they couldn't devour Israel because God killed them. So we want to be like Habakkuk and remember God's works in, in history. And remember God's works in your personal life, in your own past. And trust, God can do it again. So remember, God came from heaven to save us. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people. God sent his own son in the New Testament from heaven. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You remember his words on the cross. How Jesus called on the cross to save you, to save sinners like us. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And we too can be with him in paradise. Where he said to his own mother, mother or woman, here's your son. And son, he said to John the Apostle, here's your mother. So in his own suffering, he sees the suffering of others, the suffering of his own mother. And he cares for her. He puts his, her needs above his own. And that's what he does for us in salvation, putting our needs above his own, ahead of his own, to save us. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we would never have to say those words. And he said on the cross, I thirst. So that you no longer have to thirst. You can quench your thirst in the fountain of salvation. And he cried on the cross, it is finished. The work of salvation has been complete. It's secured. It's done. And the final words on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, so that you too can now say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then remember how Jesus used Satan's own weapons against him. Verse 14, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. Jesus used Satan's own weapon, namely death, to destroy him. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Remember how the Father raised his anointed one from the dead. He saved him. Verse 13, 
You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. That's what Christ means, or Messiah means, anointed. So there, an ultimate fulfillment where the Father raises the Son from the clutches of death, He saves Him. And then He crushes the head of the enemy, verse 14. You pierced with His own arrows the heads of the warriors. And then verse 13, you crush the head of the house of the wicked. Jesus crushed the head of Satan. Genesis 3, 15, 1 John 3, verse 8. And then also remember Jesus' ascension. How he ascended up into heaven. He ascended to heaven. He's seated as king at the right hand of the Father and he prays for you. And then remember your conversion. Remember the joy you had when you remembered, when you learned. God is your Father. Jesus is your Savior and your friend. The Holy Spirit is your comforter. He dwells in you. Your sins are forgiven. You're a new creation. You have eternal life. You have an inheritance in heaven. You're part of God's family. Remember when you were baptized and you symbolized, you illustrated, you confessed, my sins have been washed away. Remember the first time you partook of the Lord's table and you remember Jesus did this for me. And when, when you started reading the Bible in a new light, it's like everything just opened up. Sermons were different. It's like a whole new world opened up. And prayer was different. It's no longer a panic button. No, now it's a relationship with the living God. Remember God's help in the past. How God comforted you through his promises in the Bible. Do you remember how you prayed and God answered your prayers? Do you remember when you were discouraged and God sent someone to encourage you? He sent his helpers. Do you remember how God provided in your needs? How you were in a crisis and he saved you out of that crisis. And what on earth, what on earth, how, how's the coronavirus different? Just from this chapter, these verses I now read, verse 3 to 15, we learn that everything is under God's control. The sun, the moon, the mountains, the oceans, the rivers, the nations, their kings, your enemies, everything. And so whatever comes... God will work it together for the good of those who love him, for those who have been called according to his purpose. Now, perhaps for you, you're listening to the sermon and you honestly have to say you do not have a savior. When you have to think back of history and your past, and you think, well, what's going to help me now? You've got nothing. You don't have salvation and you don't have a savior. What are you going to do? Well, let me suggest what you should do, and really a command from the Word of God. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus. Jesus is a Savior who really exists, who really died for our sins on the cross, who really rose from the dead bodily, physically, historically, literally. It's an historical fact. And if you don't believe me, search it for yourself and do your research and studies. You'll find it's true. But you have to go further than the mere historical facts. You have to accept Jesus and receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Ask him to be your Savior and your Lord. You will not be disappointed. Finally, number three, third word is believe. So we had first word, pray, second word, remember, third word, believe. 
verse 16 to 19. I hear, and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on, the high, on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. So when I say believe, faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith is not saying, well, I hope the Bible's true. Although we don't have any proof, I hope the gospel's true. Although we don't have any proof. No, 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 no. It's because we have historical proof. And we know God's character. Therefore, we believe he will keep his promises. Because of verse 3 to 15, we believe verse 16 to 19. So in the case of Habakkuk, he knew God will keep the promise of chapter 1 and 2. He's going to send the Babylonians and he's going to punish the Babylonians. And therefore his whole body trembled, verse 16. And yet, he didn't pray like he did in chapter 1 and 2. He didn't pray, oh, I'm going to question your ways, O oh Lord. He didn't argue with God. Now he waited, he waited and he said, I'll wait patiently, quietly, verse 16 at the end. For the Babylonians to come. And he knows. He, he can't change the situation. He can't do anything about it. And he also knows that the economy is going to take a nosedive. He knows. No more figs. Verse 17. So that means no more figs to eat and no more medicine. Because figs were used as medicine. Isaiah 38 verse 21. No more grapes. And that means no more raisins. No more wine. No more olives. And that also means no more olive oil. That was also used as medicine. No more wheat or corn. So there's no more food in the fields. And if there's no grain, then there's no maize and there's no bread. And there's no wool if there are no flocks. And if there are no flocks, then there's no tents because they used goat skins to make tents and sheep wool to make clothes. And there are no more herds in the stalls. That means no more leather, no more meat. So there's no mutton and there's no goat meat and there's no beef. And then there's no more milk because you don't have cows and you don't have goats. And yet, verse 18, yet he rejoices in the Lord and in his salvation. So his joy is not in olives. His joy is not in what God gives him, a farm and riches and cattle and flocks. His joy is not in the economy, verse 17. His joy is in verse 18. It's in the Lord. So what Habakkuk is doing in this verse, he's just really applying chapter 2, verse 4. He's living by faith. He's trusting the Lord. He's trusting the Lord will help me. 
Through his strength and his power, he will help me through these trials. Verse 19. God the Lord is my strength. So I will be like a deer. I will be like some kind of antelope. Verse 19. On the high places, on the high rocks, on the mountains. I'll be safe. I'll be safe. So really to walk on the heights, on high places at the end of verse 19 means you are blessed and you are safe. And you are prosperous according to Deuteronomy 32.13. That's what it means. Why? Because he trusts in the Lord. And you know Habakkuk's, his experience is not unique. It's true of every believer, of everyone who trusts in the Lord. Yes, yes, that happens. Sometimes Christians really have a wrestling match with the Lord. We wrestle in our hearts. And we struggle like he did in chapters 1 and 2. But there comes a point where you bow the knee, where you wave the white flag of surrender, where you give up, where you accept God's will, and where you patiently wait on the Lord. We do not understand. What is God's plan with the coronavirus? What's his plan with lockdown? What's his plan with the economy that's crashing? Verse 17, we don't know. And yet we are Christians. We look past this world. We are not like unbelievers who stress during the coronavirus and the lockdown. And, and That's their only hope, is the economy. The only treasure they have is earthly riches. They only have verse 17, they don't have verse 18. They only have figs and olives and cattle and flocks and the rest they don't have the lord and neither are we people like the prosperity gospel the health wealth and prosperity people they only want jesus for the stuff he can give them health wealth and prosperity we don't want the coronavirus so let's take jesus no we're not like that we have a treasure we have a treasure though we should lose everything even if we lose the vines and the figs and the wheat and the cattle, and your car, and your house, and your health, and your life. We still have a treasure, the greatest treasure, Jesus Christ. Though he slay me, yet I shall hope in him. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. God is our strength. Verse 19, God the Lord is my strength. He is the one who will lead us through everything, the coronavirus, lockdown, and even death. Do you have someone like that? Do you have a friend who will be with you when you get the coronavirus? A friend who will be with you when you lose your health? A friend who will be with you when all the riches of the world can no longer help you? A friend who will be with you when no one may visit you in hospital? A friend who will be with you when you die alone? Do you have such a friend? Let us pray.